Hey, good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. If you've been trekking with us for a little bit of time, you know that we've been walking through the book of Galatians. Um, and that's a, it's a book in the New Testament, and it's really about three things. Faith, freedom, and love. Faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You don't have to earn it or work for it. As a matter of fact, you can't earn it or work for it. We receive salvation only by faith in Christ alone. Then freedom. Once we have our faith in Jesus, we now have this freedom, not just from the law and its demands, but also freedom from our old nature, that sinful nature. And for the last few weeks, we've been talking about love. What does that look like? Last week, Pastor Rashawn walked us through Galatians chapter 5 and ended that chapter really talking about the power of love and really this wrestle between the flesh and the spirit, how there's this part of us that wants to do the right thing, that wants to love, that wants to walk in the power of the spirit, and there's a part of us that doesn't. And that tension, that wrestling that we have internally is where we see God work. And Galatians chapter 5 ended with this command and this call to be spirit-filled or to be spiritual, to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And that idea is where we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 6. Let me read these first five verses, and I want to pray together. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Today, we're going to be talking about others. How in this Christian life are we called to be spiritual? And I believe Paul and the Word of God is going to define what it means to be spiritual primarily on how we deal with three things, sin, suffering, and ourself. The sin, particularly, of others, the suffering of others, and ourselves. In those three areas, Paul is going to talk about what it actually means to be spiritual. Would you pray with me? Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that it is even to the innermost parts of our heart. God, we pray that the power of your word and the power of your spirit would move convicting and revealing that which is inside of us so that the gospel can lay claim to every part of our lives. Father, I pray for those who may not know you today. They may be listening, may have been invited by a friend to watch this but they don't yet have a relationship with you. God, I pray right now you would begin even moving on their heart, softening convicting, and calling them to yourself. Move me out of the way, God, and speak your words through my mouth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Paul talks about here what it means to be spiritual, and those three ways that he's going to call us to account to measure our spirituality is sin, suffering, and self. The sin of others, the suffering of others, and how we measure and conduct ourselves. Let me preface this sermon today by saying that this is a timely and relevant word. All of God's word is perfect and revealed and timely. But in our day and age where it seem, we seem to be struggling as Christians on knowing what is our role when we see suffering, what is our role when we see sin, and how are we to conduct ourselves in this social media digital age, this word is going to be for us this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's look 
through verses 1. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted also. Paul, in verse 1, is talking about sin here. Verses 1, 2, and 3 are going to talk about the external relational realities of what it means to be a Christian. Verses 4 and 5 are going to talk about the personal responsibility. And so he begins first with our responsibility to others, especially those who are struggling in sin. It says, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, we're talking about someone who is caught in sin, how should you treat that person? Now, if we're honest, historically, the church has not answered that question well, have we? We preach about grace in the gospel, but the moment that someone needs grace in the gospel, oftentimes we fail. There is something in the culture that is really seeped into the church, and that's something called cancel culture. Have you heard of it? This idea that someone can do something and say something that would invalidate their entire life story and be deemed worthy of being thrown away and discarded. That may be true in our culture. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for ignorance. I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences for sin. What I'm saying is, as believers, we don't get the option to throw people away. When it comes to other people's sin, the Word of God is very clear what we should do, and we should run to that person with gentleness. Look at it again. It says, you who are spiritual. You see what Paul is doing? He's redefining and reshaping what we think a spiritual person is. Sometimes we think a spiritual person is someone who knows a lot of things, someone who's on a platform like this, someone who has a visible job in the church. We think of those people as spiritual people. The Bible says, no, those who are spiritual run towards broken people with gentleness to seek to restore. This word restore is actually a medical term. It it has to do with setting in a broken bone. When you see someone who is broken, when you see someone who is in error, we should run towards that person to mend the error. Yes, we must speak truth. We must call sin, sin, but we should do it with a spirit of gentleness, with a spirit of restoration, with the spirit of making that person whole again, not feel the shame of sin again. And why should we do that? Why should we be gentle when someone is in error? Why should we be gentle with someone who's offended us, who's sinned against us? Why must we operate in a spirit of gentleness? There's lots of reasons. Paul gives one right here. He says, watching out for yourselves that you also will not be tempted. Now, carefully look what he says. He didn't say that you won't fall into sin. He says so that you won't be tempted. Temptation is the wrestle that we have on the inside to choose God's path or our pleasure. And so he's saying, stay away from temptation. When we go to restore someone, we must realize that we, like them, have been tempted in the same ways. Yes, our sins might look different on the outside. I might sin differently than you on the outside. I might have different struggles than you on the outside. But on the inside, that sin that's playing itself out in your life is present in my life too. And the Bible is calling us to remind ourselves who we really are. To don't think that you won't be tempted by that thing. If you've lived long enough, you learn to say things like, you learn to not say things like, I would never do that. I used to be that person. I would never do that. Before I had kids, I had a list of things that I would never do. Before I was married, I had a list of things that I would never do. When I first got saved, there was a list of things that I would never do. (laughs) And life has a way of humbling you real quick, doesn't it? 
The things that you didn't think you were capable of, you realize that the right moment, the right time, the right temptation, and all of a sudden you are capable of any sin and every sin. So just because you find yourself in a moment of strength now, we should run towards our brother who's experiencing a moment of weakness with gentleness. How we respond to other people's sin, I believe, is the primary mark of a mature Christian. How we respond to other people's sin is the primary mark of spiritual maturity. Not how much you know, not how much you serve, not how much you give, not how often you come to church service. But how do you respond to other people's sin? Is it with judgment? Is it with condemnation and shame? Is it with apathy, that's not my problem? Or do you run towards that person to restore them with gentleness? That's the first mark of those who are spiritual is how we respond to other people's sin. But watch out, Paul's not done yet. We're just in verse 1. Verse 2, he keeps going. He says that we must carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The first way that we respond, the first mark of spiritual maturity is how we respond to other people's sin. The second mark is how we respond to other people's suffering. This word burden is a Greek word, baros, which literally means sufferings or hardships. It means someone is going through something that's hard on them and even too much for them. How we respond to other people's suffering is the second mark of those who are spiritual. Now, before I get into the two things that this means to carry one another's burdens, let me start with the premise that's, a, that's applied here, is that we all have burdens. Amen. We all have stuff that we're going through. One of the greatest tricks the devil will pull in your life is convincing you what you're going through is unique to you. No one is as bad of a sinner as you. No one struggles with this like you do. No one else can understand what you're going through. No one can understand the pain of the loss, and so you feel isolated and alone. Anyone ever seen those National Geographic documentaries, right, like the hunting lion party? No matter what animals lions are hunting, it's always the same strategy, is it not? It's to run in, circle, and divide. You see, you can't attack the herd. You, there's too much protection in the community. Y'all picking up what I'm saying? There's too much protection there, so the lion has to run in to, to scatter someone, to divide them. And that's why the Bible says that the devil comes like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. His strategy is the same, is to get you feeling like you're all by yourself, to get you feeling like you're all alone in this moment of suffering, in this moment of hardship that no one can understand, and you are by yourself, and that's where the devil likes to play. Galatians 6, 2 reminds us that we all carry burdens. Our burdens may be different. Our struggles may be different, but we all have this shared experience of being broken people living in a broken world, hanging on by the power of the Spirit. So with that in mind, what does it actually mean to bear one another's burdens? If we're tempted here, we'll dilute what the Word of God is saying to be more of a hallmark card Christianity. Y'all know what I'm talking about? This kind of the pat you on the head Christianity? There's this Christianity that doesn't cause us to change too much. The Christianity that makes us a little bit comfortable while still having a feeling of doing righteousness. If I'm honest, verse 2 and verse 3, which we'll get to in a minute, that truth in those verses is what convicted me the most. This idea of what it meant to carry the burdens of others. And so I believe it means two things. One, it means that we must share our burdens 
And two, it, must, it means that we must carry the burdens of others. In order to be obedient to verse 2 of Galatians 6, it means at least two things. One, that we must share our burdens, and two, is that we must carry others' burdens. We must share our burdens. There is a tendency in all of us, especially those in the West and in America, to have this sense of independence. All the single number. There's a sense of independence where we can do it by ourselves. I got it. I don't need any help. As a matter of fact, some of us have been trained that way in our homes growing up. Some of you have heard, you know, what stays in this house, what happens in this house stays in this. Amen. You were taught your whole life, like, nope, this is, the, this is the bubble, this is the circle. We don't share our burdens with others. We don't share our problems with others. We keep it right here. And maybe even others of us have tried to share our burdens. We came to our brothers and sisters for help. We, we came to someone, and they disappointed us. And so we got to the place where we realized, man, I can do bad all by myself. Why should I share my burdens with others that doesn't ever seem to work out? Well, one, it's a command. But if you read through the New Testament and the Old Testament, you'll see that Christianity cannot be done in isolation. You cannot be a Christian, a faithful, obedient Christian by yourself. The one another's in Scripture, over a hundred times in the New Testament alone, do you hear the phrase one another? Fifty-nine at least distinct commands to love one another, instruct one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, bear with one another, make your love increase for one another, encourage one another, do not slander one another, pray for one another. And over a dozen times is the clear command to love one another. You see, Christianity cannot be done in isolation. It cannot be done by ourselves and for ourselves. If we're going to obey the commands of Scripture, we must live relying on other people. We must fight against a sinful independence that prioritizes you and your, your private time with God, you and your, your quiet time with God, and that's it. Christianity cannot be done in isolation. We must share our burdens. You do not have to bear these things alone. But not only must we bear one another's burdens, we must also carry the burdens of others. I'm called to share my burdens and fight my independence, but I'm also called to bear the burdens of others, which is fighting my tendency towards isolation. Any introverts in the room? Right? Any introverts that says, man, I just want, I, I spend all day trying to get back home. I spend all day trying to get back by myself. I got enough going on in my own life. I have enough happening in my own home. I don't have the margin or the capacity or the desire to carry the burdens of other people. As the Bible would say, you are walking in disobedience. We must fight against the sin of isolation that says, you got your problems, I got mine, I'll take care of mine, you take care of yours, just leave me alone. Even as Christians, even as spirit-filled, blood-bought believers, many of us have still patterned our ways after the ways of the world. Our whole life is about protecting our comfort, our finances, our future, our family, and our children. But what about other people's comfort? What about other people's finances? What about other people's families? I'm not negating the unique responsibility that we all have to our own households. I'm not negating that. What I'm saying is, on the scale of the decisions that we made, is other people a priority for us? Let me make it real practical here. 
The last big decision that you made, maybe it was to attend school, take on a job, move into a new home. The last big decision that you made, did other people, your Christian brothers and sisters, play any part in you making that decision? Did the needs of others play any part in you making that decision? Seeing how you could facilitate community in this new home. Seeing how the hours on this job could create rhythms of connection. I'm not saying it's the sole decider. We're all in unique situations. I'm saying, is it on the scale at all? Do we creating room in our life to carry the burdens of others? Or are we pretty much living our lives our way and just sprinkling a little bit of Jesus on the top? Or have we radically redefined the goal, the future, and the finances of our own lives to make room to carry the burdens of others? That's what it means to, to bear the burdens and so fulfill what? The law of Christ. This is such a big deal. Paul says it's the, it fulfills the law of Christ. That's a unique phrase used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's really kind of a jab at the Galatians who wanted to keep the laws. He said, okay, you know what? You're, you're the task person. You're the list-making person. You're the person who needs the rules that some of us, right? We need the rule. We need the, we're task-driven. We need the thing to do. Paul says, okay, if you want a law to keep, if you want a rule to keep, if you need a task list to make, here's the rule. Here's the law. Love. Love your neighbor. Galatians 5.14 says the whole law is fulfilled in the one statement, love your neighbor as yourself, which is really just quoting Leviticus 19.18. So the Old Testament and the New Testament both point towards this ethic of Christian love. And not the, the pleasant love that doesn't intrude too much upon our lives, not the, the pleasant love that, rel- that keeps our lives relatively unfazed, unmoved, undisturbed. No, the sacrificial love, the love that Jesus displayed on the cross, the laying your life down type of love that says, I'm going to make room in my budget. I'm going to make room in my home. I'm going to make room in my career plans for myself, for my brothers and sisters, to make room to carry those burdens. How we respond to the sin of others and how we respond to the suffering of others are the two first non-negotiable marks of the spiritual believer, of the spiritual person. Do we run towards the suffering of others? Do we see our brothers and sisters suffering in ways that we are not personally experiencing, yet we feel the weight because we are connected by the blood of Jesus? And do we run towards that, seeking to take the burdens off of them and place it upon ourselves? That's what Christ calls us to, church. Nothing less than that is living out this truth. Now, verse 3 is going to add on to this. We're going to talk about personal responsibility in just a second, but right now we're still talking about this corporate communal responsibility we have one to another. And the first command is to, to restore the broken and the wayward brother. There are some of us who, who should call out one another in love when we see each other sinning and in error. And there are some who are just suffering under the weight of reality of life. And we're called to jump in to bear some of those burdens. And Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 is going to make a sweeping charge. It says this, For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What is Paul talking about here? We were just talking about bearing one another's burdens. We are just talking about, you know, restoring the wayward brother. I believe what, what Paul is saying in verse 3 is this is everybody's job. 
This isn't reserved for the, the spiritually elite. This isn't reserved for, for some believers, the nicer believers. This is for everybody. And these days, there are some believers who feel like Christianity is under attack, that orthodoxy is under attack, that true gospel preaching and pronouncement is under attack. And so some of us have taken it as our job not to restore our brother, not to carry the burdens of our brother, but to defend the Christian faith. And we say, okay, those nice people over there, they can love people, but my job is to be a defender of truth. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. And so we see the prime responsibility of the Christian is to make sure people are right, to protect Christianity from error, to defend Christianity from error. And there is a place for that believer. But do you believe that your primary job as a Christian is to theology or to your brother? Let me me say this clearly, and then I want to unpack it. Christianity does not need our protection. It needs our participation. Christianity does not need our protection. It needs our participation. They have tried to kill Christians and destroy the church before. They have tried to burn Bibles and and kill preachers of the word. They have tried to snuff out, make it illegal and immoral to be a Christian, and it is still here. I promise you, believer, Christianity cannot be destroyed by the forces of evil. That is what Jesus meant, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I'm not saying that there's no room for the correction of doctrine, but what if we ran relationally first? What if instead of defending correct doctrine, we decided to defend our brothers first? What if we decided not to just restore orthodoxy, we decided to restore our wayward brother first? You see, it's easy to defend ideas. It's easy to fight for a vague, nebulous truth. It's harder to knock on somebody's door, to pick up the phone and say, hey, brother, I'm concerned about you. There is a right doctrine. There is a wrong doctrine. But the way we defend it is through relationship first, not by tweeting and retweeting and subtweeting, not by just sharing the meme that's the one one line zinger. It's about entering into the hard, messy, unrelenting work of relationship. You see, it's hard to call out our own, isn't it? It's hard to pick up the brother that you know and that you love and say, hey, man, I think you're wrong. But that's what it means to restore the wayward brother is to see someone in error or in sin and say, hey, brother, I'm going to take responsibility for you because you're my brother. Hey, sister, I'm going to take responsibility for you because you are my sister. I'm not just going to tweet about you. I'm just not going to talk about you and the error. I'm going to actually engage you. What if we defended our brothers and sisters? What if we restored our brothers and sisters? What if we thought about the people and not just policies and theology first? And I get it. That's hard. I'm I'm, I'm a Bible nerd. I I love reading this stuff. I love debating these ideas and these concepts. I've devoted my whole life to the study and proclamation of God's Word. I get it. That's easy for me to sit on my couch and talk about how wrong people are. It's easy for me to do. It's easy for me to surround myself with people who agree with me and for us to talk about the people who don't agree. It's harder for me to pick up the phone and have a conversation and be willing to listen and hear and share. That's what the Word of God is calling us to, church, is to actually be brothers and sisters. 
even in our statements here, to be a member of the church, we say one of the commitments that we make to each other is to talk to each other, not about one another. That's where Galatians 6 is talking about. Don't talk about your brother. Talk to your brother. Christianity does not need your protection. It needs your participation. It needs you to wade into the messiness of life with your brother and sister whom you disagree with, with the brother and sister whom you think is wrong, who may even be wrong. It calls us to wade into the waters of relationship with that person and say, I'm going to come with you, not just to talk about them. And that's hard. And hear what I'm not saying. I'm not pitting theology against practice. I'm saying the Word of God tells us to put our theology into practice. It's not one or the other. It's both and. It's living out these truths of scriptures in our daily lives, in relationship with one another. So the two marks of a spiritual person that we've talked about already are, one, how we respond to the sin of others. Do we judge them and condemn them, or do we run towards them to correct and to mend? Yes, but with a spirit of gentleness. Secondly, how do we respond to the suffering of others? Do we sit on the sidelines and spectate, or do we run towards those who have a burden too heavy to carry? Verses 4 and 5 are going to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about this corporate communal responsibility we have to one another. Verses 4 and 5 are going to talk about a personal responsibility we have to ourselves and to our God. Read verses 4 and 5 with me. It says, Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute. Verse 5 just contradicted verse 2. Carrying our own load and bearing the burdens of others seem to be in opposition to one another. I'm going to talk about it in just a minute, but let's start with verse 4. That each person examine his own work. That word examine literally means to test. It's the same word when it comes to testing the purity of gold or other fine metals. It means to see what you're really made of. And the Bible says that we are to examine our own work and not the work of others. Isn't that hard, though? Being honest with ourselves is sometimes the hardest thing we will ever do. Let me prove it to you. Y'all looking like, no, I'm self-aware. I got it. Y'all remember back in the day when you took, like, pop quizzes? I don't know if people even use pencil and paper in school no more. I'm out, I'm, out the, I'm out the game, right? But when we took those pop quizzes in class, and I used to love this phrase. After you finished the pop quiz, my favorite thing to hear was what? Pass the paper to the person behind you. It's like hitting the lottery, isn't it? It's like, okay, I got my boy behind me. He's going to look out for me. I got my homegirl in front of me. I'm going to look out for her. We're going to be good. We're all going to get A's on this thing. Why? Because I know them, I like them, and so I'm able to interpret even the vaguest of, of incorrect answers to be the right answer. Is that a nine or a zero? Eh, that's close enough, right. right? Is that the letter A or the letter B? I know what he meant, right. right? <laughs> when, it, when we get the opportunity to judge ourselves or judge those whom we like, we tend to give extraordinary grace. But sometimes it backfires on you, doesn't it? The person you hand your paper to was the person you were mean to last week. You know, they asked, they asked to borrow a pencil, and you said no. They asked for a piece of your honey bun, and you told them to get their own. And all of a sudden, they stand with your paper with all the power in their hands. And now, all of a sudden, all that grace goes out the window. Now, no, that's clearly not the number nine. I don't know what that is, but it's not right. What is it? Like, is there something about where we're able to see things differently based on the proximity? When we like someone, we see it in the best possible way. When we don't, we see it clearly wrong. 
There's actually a, a psychological term for this. Um, there's the two psychologists, Edward Jones and Richard Nisbet. In 1971, they actually coined a term called the actor-observer effect. The actor-observer effect basically says this. It says, when we look at our own behavior, we attribute our behavior to situational factors. And, we, and other people, though, we attribute their behavior to their character. Let me make it real plain. What's he saying? When I do something wrong, it's because I'm a good person in a bad situation. When other people do something wrong, they're just bad people. That's our, even, our, even secular psychologists define this inability to see ourselves rightly. When it comes to us and our sin, we have unusual grace and patience. When it comes to the sins of others, there just seems to be right and wrong. There seems to be no grace. And yet the Word of God is telling us in verse 4 to examine ourselves. Well, how are we to examine ourselves? The first thing we should not do is we should not compare ourselves with others. It says, let each person examine his own work so that he can take pride in himself alone and what? Not compare himself with someone else. There's two dangers when we compare ourselves with others. One is the sin of pride and the other is the sin of shame. You see, sometimes we compare ourselves and we feel better about ourselves, don't we? Well, I'm not as bad as that person. I don't do it as often as that person, so I feel pretty good about ourselves. And then we go to the Word, and the Word of God corrects us. And there are times when we compare ourselves to others, and we actually feel shame because we're not measuring up. We don't seem to have what that person has. We don't seem to understand like that person understands. We don't seem to be able to, to do what that person is able to do. We feel a sense of shame, and yet we go to the Word of God and feel encouraged. And that becomes the metric of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. How are we to judge ourselves? By the Word of God. The Word of God says this about itself. For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul, spirits, joints, and marrow. Listen carefully. It, the Word, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So how are we to examine ourselves? It's not by looking at ourselves. It's not even by looking at others. It's by staring into the mirror of the Word of God. That's why daily we need to be immersing ourselves in the Scriptures. Because by its standard, we judge ourselves rightly. Not by the standards we set up for ourselves, not by the standards of other people, but by the Word of God. That becomes the ultimate measuring rod of who we are in areas of our life that we need the gospel to penetrate. And so the first, most, first thing that we must do personally in this area of personal responsibility is that we must examine ourselves by the Word of God. We must test ourselves by the Word of God. I want to give some applications of what that means, but I'm going to connect verse 5 here for a second. Verse 5 says, for a person will have to carry his own Load. I said earlier that this seems to contradict Galatians 6.2. This idea of carrying your own load seems to contradict what verse 2 said about carrying the burdens of others. Paul is doing something in the Greek that's hard to see in the English. You see, there's two different words being used here for burden. In verse 2, it's the word baros, which just literally means suffering. But this word in verse 5 is fortium, which just means luggage. Or knapsack. It's like a backpack. It's what you are traveling with. It's what you are able to carry. 
And so verse 5 isn't negating verse 2. It's not saying that you really do have to carry your own burdens, and it's not saying that other people can help you with some of it, but you've got to do some of it yourself. That's not what it's saying here, although that may be true. What it's saying here is that in this life, we must carry one another's burdens, that we must mend the broken areas of other people's lives. We have a responsibility to one another and for one another, but there is coming a time where we will have to carry our own burdens. It says, for each person will have to carry. It's looking towards the future. The theologian John Stott is helpful here, talking about the difference between carrying one of burdens in verse 2 and carrying our own load in verse 5, and he says it this way. So, we are to bear one another's burdens, which are too heavy for a man to bear alone. But there is one burden which we cannot share, indeed do not need to share, because it is a pack light enough for every man to carry himself, and that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry yours. You see, what Paul is looking at in chapter 5 is that great day where we will have to stand in front of God all by ourselves. You see, in this life, we have our brothers and sisters. We are able to lean on one another, encourage one another, bear the burdens of one another. But there is coming a day of judgment for both the Christian and the unchristian, where we have to stand in front of God by ourselves. And the question won't be, did you go to a church that shared the gospel? The question will be, did you share the gospel? The question won't be, did you go to a church that made disciples? The question will be, did you make disciples? The question won't be, did you go to a church that was generous? No, the question will be, were you generous? You see, the Christian must be individually obedient, even as we are corporately responsible. I must obey the Word of God for myself. The prayers of my mama can't get me in, and my mama's a praying woman. The prayers of my grandmama can't get me in. The prayers of my aunts and uncles and friends can't get me in. There's going to be a time where I'm going to stand in front of God all by myself, and it will be my obedience or disobedience that's on display. And Paul is saying that in this life we have one another, but don't use one another as a crutch. Are you walking in obedience yourself? Because one day we're going to have to take that same test, and we're not going to be able to pass our paper to our neighbor. The judge himself will judge our lives. Even for the Christian, verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 15 says this about the judgment for the believer. It says, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What is the Word of God saying? It's saying that you are a Christian. You are blood-bought, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. You are still going to experience a judgment. And the judgment will be based upon, were you obedient to my Word? You see, for the believer, it won't be about heaven or hell. It'll be about obedience or disobedience. You are still a son. You are still a daughter. But were you a good son? Were you a good daughter? Did you live up to the talents that I gave you? Did you live up to the potential and the opportunities that I gave you? Or did you live your, for yourself, by yourself? And as I close, there's also a coming judgment for the unbeliever. It's not a comfortable topic. We don't like talking about it. But there is a judge 
who will one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The only question will be, would it be too late for you to make that confession? You see, after you die, it is too late to realize you were wrong. There is coming a day of judgment. There is coming a day of judgment for the unbeliever, and it won't be whether you were obedient or disobedient. It will be, did you accept or reject Jesus? Once again, the book of Galatians is about faith, hope, and love, and these are stones built upon each other. You can't get to loving your brother and sister without first having faith in Jesus Christ. You can't just try to be a good person. You can't just try to bear the burdens of others. You can't just try to bear the suffering of others as an excuse to just jump over Christ. No, you must enter the gate through Jesus. You must enter the family through repentance and faith. And if you haven't yet said yes to Jesus, then no amount of obedience, no amount of bearing the burdens, no amount of correction, no amount of introspection can get you there. It is only by putting your faith in Jesus. And if you don't end this life, you will face a judge, and there will be a punishment, a terrible wrath of God poured out on you, and you will have deserved it. And the reality is God is calling even right now, calling you to himself, not just to spare you from judgment, so that you, but also so that you can live up to the potential and the purpose that God has made you to live up to. He is your creator, and if you meet him as your creator, he will show you the purposes and plans that he has for your life, but if you don't meet him as creator, if you don't meet him as savior, you will meet him as judge. And that's for us all. Both believers and unbelievers alike, there is a standard upon which we should live our lives. And for the believer, once we have put our faith in Jesus, how we respond to others' sin, how we respond to others' suffering, and how we respond to the life that we are personally living, that's the mark of what it means to be spiritual. And that's what the Word of God is calling us to do. And for Radiant Church specifically, this is the only way forward. It's the only way forward. If the sins of others, if the suffering of others causes tone deafness, causes isolation, causes separation, there is no path forward for us. But if we obey the commands of Scripture to run towards brokenness, to run towards suffering, run towards one another, then we can see the Spirit of God do something powerful through the people of God.